you really need to build your business based on knowing your domain exceptionally well, on communicating about that domain exceptionally well, and on things like product selection and on support, being able to back up the products that you sell with a great amount of personal knowledge about how they can improve people's lives. This is Commerce Minded, where we go behind the scenes to talk with the people who make e-commerce tick. Brought to you by Foster Commerce. I'm your host, Stephen Callender. You all are in for a treat today. I had a wonderful chat with Jeremy Dowder, and he definitely laid down some wisdom on just running a business, uh, an e-commerce business, but then also his expertise as, as a coder, as a developer, and, and understanding of craft was is just really essential and, and helpful. I think you'll find it really impactful, whether you're a developer and you're developing for your merchants, your clients, or if you're a merchant yourself and you're kind of getting an understanding of, of how to approach your craft build, what to ask your developer to build for you if you're not doing it yourself. Just some really solid advice in there, especially around the, the idea of being an expert and how to display that expertise on your website in a really engaging and just bottom line business way. Jeremy has, and we talk about this in the episode, but Jeremy came on my radar because he has some really interesting plugins for Commerce One that to me just seems really essential. And obviously to him, they were essential, but they weren't in the core. And the main one, or there's main two really were, were friendly order numbers, which basically allowed us to have sequential order numbering in a just more human way, as he says in the episode. And then also for the ability to register a user on checkouts. So neither of those were in core for Commerce One. Uh, those are definitely going to be in Commerce Two at some points. I'm not sure the exact timeline on all that at this point, but Jeremy definitely had some wisdom in that. And he was a part of the early, early core. So being down in Australia, uh, where Luke is, he was part of the early group that um, that was interested in commerce when it was market and chatting. So absolutely fascinating. Um, and just his journey and uh, where he is now. So enjoy, and uh, we'll see you on the other side. So you've moved around quite a bit, right? You've lived in Australia and you've lived in Europe. How many places have you kind of been around to? Well, let's see. Um, I was born in New Zealand. I didn't live there very long. My family moved to Australia when I was, I don't know, about a year old. I then grew up for the next 20 years in a small town, relatively small town um, called Adelaide, which is in South Australia. And my parents and my sister still live there. I was there till I was about 20 at the time, I couldn't wait to leave, although I really like it now. <laughs> I see different things in it now than I did then. But really, basically, when I graduated from uni, there were very few employers, I guess, at the level that I was looking for in a small town like Adelaide. It's only got about a million people. And, and while it's a very pleasant place, it's just work opportunity-wise, it just seemed incredibly limited. And frankly, I just couldn't wait to leave. And another big reason was that all my family are Dutch. So I really wanted to go and spend some time over in Holland getting to know them more properly. So I worked in Australia for about a year at a place called the Defence Science and Technology Organisation, doing some artificial intelligence research stuff with the very fancy radar we have here in Australia. I then moved over to Europe with the intention of going to the UK just because that's kind of a 
rite of passage for Australians. Is it? Oh, definitely. Yeah, well, it was. It's harder now, what with, you know, Brexit and visas and, you know, the the entire world lurching off to the right wing. um, It has become a little bit more difficult to do that sort of thing. But for me, because I had a Dutch passport, it was really the logical thing to do. And I reckon, I'd say more than half of my friends from university ended up doing the same thing. So, you know, there was this really great time when for about five years I was living in Europe and, you know, a whole bunch of my friends were there with us and we all shared houses and all went out on the weekends together and all did exciting and interesting things and travelled through Europe and, yeah, it was just a really great time really. But anyway, I I moved over. I actually got myself a scholarship to um, Cambridge University to do a PhD in the overlap of um, computing and genetics. In actual fact, I was looking at a thing called... um, I did an honours project on, on something called genetic algorithms, which is a kind of um, sort of AI optimization technique. And then I was going to reverse that and look at the applications of DNA to computing, i.e. doing computing in a test tube using encoded bits of DNA. So you would basically um, link together DNA and, uh, and use it to solve, you know, well, problems that required massively parallel processing. And I had this all lined up. I had a supervisor and I went over to Cambridge. Um, you know, I had a bit of a holiday first and I went over to Cambridge and I just couldn't do it. I just could not go back to uni for four more years. And uh, even though it's a beautiful place and I had another friend who was doing it and whatnot, I mean, it's Cambridge University. It's one of the world's best universities. But I just couldn't face four more years of education, really, at that point. So, um, Well, you had just experienced, it sounds like you just experienced like the good life, you know, of like just being able to travel around. Yeah, I spent several months just basically, you know, getting to know my family and partying in Holland with my cousins and doing some travel. And the idea of closing myself in a, in a big brown building again for four more years just, just didn't sit well with me. So to the horror of my parents, I let that go and said, I think I'm going to move to Holland and get a job. And, uh, you know, on the one hand, because my dad, he's very academic, there was like, oh, but, you know, Cambridge. And then there was also a, a factor of, oh, well, he's going to Holland. At least that's good. He'll get to know the family. So, you know, I sort of uh, sold it to them that way. And It was a good second option. Yeah, exactly. It was a, a good second option indeed. And so um, I made a deal with a Dutch, uh, well, not a Dutch company, an international company called Capgemini, that I would come and work for them in Holland if they taught me Dutch. So I traded off essentially some accelerated Dutch lessons because despite the fact that my parents are both Dutch, they never spoke Dutch at home because they both teach English at university. So um, I never really was that exposed to much Dutch, and um, but I wanted to learn it. I thought there was no better way to know my Dutch family than actually speak their language. Um, yeah, so I, I made this deal with them, you know, you've got to teach me Dutch and then I'll come and work for you. And they were very keen on that because I had some unique skills in the defense artificial intelligence area um, from my year of work. And they were very keen to do some work with NATO who were looking for those skills. So basically, it became a bit of a mutual benefit arrangement. Um, They taught me some Dutch. I did some work for NATO for about about a year, again, working on um, what's called battle situation awareness stuff, which is basically using artificial intelligence to work out what's going on on in the ground in an actual battle or in a in a military um, uh, scenario and then you know that led me into doing some some work in java and and some graphics work and stuff in the sort of visual arts which is probably where my personal interest in the visual arts which evolved into what i do now that's where that probably began i did that for a while but i really didn't want to work in defense anymore defense you know it's a really well funded and a really interesting area but it can be ridiculously soul destroying stuff like it can be actively an unpleasant thing to work in because you are literally 
you're talking about battles and people dying and you know all that sort of stuff on a regular basis and you're kind of you're analyzing that so you're really kind of thinking about it in depth and yeah I didn't like it at all I also didn't like the fact that I literally worked in a bunker you know with a solid 60 centimeter steel door that's pressure sealed and if a fire starts in the building they release halicon gas which basically just sucks the oxygen out of the room they don't open the door they basically suck the oxygen out of the room in the hope that the fire goes out before you do. Because it's all classified, top secret stuff, they won't open the door. They just put the fire out by sucking out the air out of the room. And the idea is, yeah, it dies before you do, which just, you know, anyway, it's not very pleasant when you're thinking about that at work. And um, Were you thinking, man, I should have gone to Cambridge? Pretty much. At that point, it was. Yeah, no, no question about it. Although I was really loving, you know, living in Holland and getting to know the family. I, I definitely was getting quite depressed about what I was working on and the environment in which I was working. So I took another left turn and I then made another sort of arrangement with an investment bank in London and sort of said to them, hey, I think I have an interest in sort of trading and that sort of thing. And I'm willing to come over and, you know, work on some logistics and IT related stuff for you guys if you'll send me through a course in trading so I can at least learn whether that's something I'll like. My dad has always been a keen share market type of person and uh, dabbles in bonds and all that sort of stuff. So that seemed like an area of interest that uh, I might like. To be honest, I didn't, <laughs> but I made this deal. Anyway, long story short, I eventually, through that investment bank, got involved with an e-commerce company who um, developed the very first online bank system, wholly online bank system in the UK for the Commonwealth Bank in the UK. So that was called Smile Banking, and it was the first 100% online bank account the UK ever had. We developed that in Java um, and using a middleware product called Brocat Twister, which was sort of a you know an early version of what became enterprise application servers and you know all that java bean stuff and i don't think anyone uses the term middleware anymore but it's basically a bunch of glue that grabs uh, data from legacy systems you know banking systems of of all types and and or share trading systems whatever it might be and then connects that to a front end that is customer facing so basically zapier Yes, I guess so. Zapier is a, yeah, a long, long, long distant descendant of that sort of thing. But yeah, basically, it was the glue that brought all this disparate stuff together. I mean, at the one end, you'd have an, literally you know, some 25, 30-year-old IBM mainframe where all the transactional stuff for the bank is, is stored. And then at the other end, you'd have the web browser. You know, And at that point, um, serious applications and web browsers were all done in Java. And then there was this Twister thing was um, absurdly named piece of software that sat in the middle of all that. Anyway, that that gave me exposure to e-commerce because all our customers were people like American Express and um, General Electric Corporate Finance, uh, who do a lot of online credit card stuff and all that sort of thing. So I very quickly got a lot of exposure to and skills in e-commerce. Then I decided to go traveling again. I did the other kind of absolutely cliche thing. I went trekking through Nepal for several months. Spent some time, that's great. Yeah, doing doing some things I probably shouldn't do in Spain, um, and were probably illegal. Um, and having a lot of fun, um, just trying to work out what on earth I wanted to do. Because did your parents know about that stuff? Yeah, my parents are cool. They're Dutch, you know, so, so they uh, they're very cool and they're very relaxed. And as long as I'm safe, they're fine. Really, they were always very supportive. To be fair to them, um, despite the fact that I, I kept jumping around different industries and and doing different things. And when I look back on it, it all it all seems you know just completely crazy to me now that uh, my early years of work. But I, I was lucky. I mean, I worked for NATO. I worked for IBM. Uh, American Express, Nokia, General Electric. I mean, you know, I, I shook Jack Welch's hand. He's like the biggest CEO in the universe at the time. All of that sort of stuff. So I, I was really very fortunate to get exposure across a very wide range of industries and platforms, technologies. But 
in the later years of that, all very much in the sort of e-commerce space, which was really just sort of emerging as a serious thing at that point. You know, this is around sort of, you know, 1999, 2000, 2001, just before the big dot-com crash, which I timed really well because that's exactly when I went trekking is, you know, the first month of trekking, I kind of got onto a computer to check what was going on and everyone started going, oh, dot-com, you know, it's burst. And I'm like, well, that was good timing. You know, <laughs> Perfect for me, really. Um, anyway, I traveled around for the better part of a year and I came back to Australia and I was, well, fortunately I was pretty cashed up because the dot-com boom was really good. And I was just thinking, you know, I'll just muck around. I had a, had a go at writing a book for a little while, which is much, much harder. Yeah, what was that about? That was a fiction, a novel. And it was, let me just say, writing a book is much harder than it looks. <laughs> so I spent about six months giving that a very serious go. And uh, look, it's still an eventual plan of mine to get back to. The same book? No, no, I'm not the same man as I was, you know, at 20, at 43. <laughs> so it would inevitably be a different book. And that, that really was the problem was that while writing it, and I have sort of got this problem with web development as well, you learn so much while doing it that you then want to go back and do it again. And with a book, it's such a massive labor that you can't really do that too many times before you really just have to go, yeah, this is not working. And this is kind of just not the thing for me right now. What genre are you trying to write in? Like, what's your inclination? Uh, look, pretentious literary fiction, I think you would call it. <laughs> you, know, the, uh, you know, look, it was very much just a, a book about what it means to be human and about human relationships. And, uh, you know, but it had a slightly... And doing illegal things in Spain or, or is that part of Well, a little bit of that, you know, inevitably, you can't help but be a bit autobiographical in anything, I think. I never finished it, is the short version. And, you know, at a certain point, I went, look, this isn't happening. I mean, at least I'm sort of realistic enough to know that I didn't just sort of sit there forever and, and whatnot. I went, I'm going to have to do some work again. And I started looking for jobs back in the same sort of thing. And I just went, I just can't do it. I don't feel like I want to do this anymore because I was, I was really sick of, again, a cliche, but working for the man. I really wanted to stop building things for other people, you know, contributing to their success rather than sort of my own success. So I took a left field into photography for a couple of years. I decided that, you know, because I, I was in the unique position, I had a bit of money behind me. This, if I was going to study something else, this was the one real time to do it. So I went off and did a degree in photography and that led into, along the way, during that degree, um, I started a business called Image Science. Largely by accident, it was really just to fill in some time and to, you know, keep a little bit of income trickling in while I was studying. And it just took on a life of its own. And what is it now, 16, 17 years later, I am still running this accidental business. And, you know, now it's my wife and myself running the business. She was in it with me literally from day one. And we have some employees and, you know, it's been ticking over very steadily for more than 15 years. And now, honestly, I can't really imagine doing anything else. Although sometimes I'd, I would like to <laughs> imagine that I do something else. <laughs> well, I would expect that. Even in this short conversation, kind of knowing you, I would expect that there, there, there's always a piece of you that wants to get out or try something new and shake it up. and Absolutely. I, I mean, I get kind of intellectually bored fairly easily. So I, I do need new challenges. And I don't know, I, I guess I'm arrogant enough about myself that I, I like to do things properly and I like to do them myself because so often when other people do them for me, I don't find them wonderfully properly done. So, I mean, I, I ran this business for a long time and, you know, we had a website like every business, but I used off-the-shelf products to do it. And I kept looking at these things and going, they're just not that good. You know, they don't really solve the problem I want them to solve in a great manner. They're just not that successful at what I want to do. And I, I could do this, but the, you know, I'm running a full-time business and, I, you know, now I've got two young kids and so on. There isn't a great deal of time. And at, at a certain point, and, and this kind of harks back 
to the episode with Luke and Brandon, sometimes it takes a supportive wife to really help you along in this area in the sense of I started saying, I think I want to build our website ourselves, And I think I also recognize that I really want to do it really well and that it's a really tall order to do that as in a single person web development. It's for a, you know, a project of the scope I was talking about. Yeah, that's a big thing. And it takes a, quite a lot of time away from me being in the business. So I, I needed to have her on board with the idea. And I think if I'm realistic about it, I don't think either of us realized what an epic uh, journey it would end up being. <laughs> So when when was this? When did you, did you first build it? All right. So we're up to about 2012 here. In around 2012, I started looking seriously at doing it and I was evaluating the various products. Well, basically in 2012, I was still looking at using off-the-shelf components and basically finding a cart and bolting it onto, I don't know, WordPress or something you know like that. And I was, I was doing all my investigations. And what I was really trying to find was for me the holy grail of e-commerce which was this perfect system for taking content and commerce and intertwining the two of them seamlessly and in a really almost new way you know i did not want and i still think it's the fundamental problem with most e-commerce you either have a content system with a crappy cart bolted onto it or you have a really good shopping cart with a crappy content system bolted onto it and you never have a really good implementation of both or at least you didn't until products like Expression Engine and Cart Systems for that came along and so on. And that's where I started. I'll get to that. But um, ultimately, that is what craft and commerce is to me. It is this ultimate content and commerce system that merges those two things together in a seamless way that just hasn't been done before. Anyway, so in 2012, I started exploring various things. And uh, to cut a long story short, I ended up going for Expression Engine with a product called Cartthrop as the cart. This was Possibly the biggest mistake I made in the whole project uh, was that early decision. At the time, though, you know, craft was not even a gleam. Well, I don't know the exact timing, but at this point, I hadn't even heard of blocks and it wasn't really more than a glimmer in Brandon's eye, I think, at that point. Really, it certainly wasn't a viable platform and there was no e-commerce solution for it or anything like that. So really, I wanted an established content system, but a very flexible content system and an established cart system. Now, I had my reservations about Cartthrob pretty much right from the beginning, but it was very sophisticated. The more you dug into it, the more awful that you realized it was in many ways in terms of its actual implementation. But there was no doubt what it could do was pretty amazing at the time. And it really did allow for this ability to store and display content and completely intertwine the e-commerce right into it. So, you know, I was looking for something that could just do some basic things. You know, I didn't want just a grid of products and a category page. What I really wanted was to be able to write a website that was more like a magazine with products living inside of it. The customer could read about stuff and be educated about what to buy and then literally buy it right off the page at that moment. Because you know, it always seems to me that the best time to get someone to, to purchase something is when they're actively learning about it and enthusiastic about it and can immediately see, you know, it's going to solve this problem. And the classic product page isn't really very good at doing that. Really what a classic product page is, is a series of pictures and some specifications and not much, you know, genuine content about what the product is, how it's going to affect your day-to-day and solve your business problems. And this is, you know, what I had in my head was I really said, how can I make kind of a living magazine? Because my business right from the early days was truly content-driven. I mean, I know 
all around the web you see content is king and whatnot. But what that has come to mean is, you know, five ways to cook pasta or whatever, you know, BuzzFeed rubbish. It's not real content. And the very focus of my business, because there was a strong education component to it right from the beginning. I used to teach at all the universities and all the camera clubs and so forth around here. Because we're a niche technical business working in in an area where you really kind of have to educate the clients um, so that they can work out what to buy because they're not always, you know, experts in the field. What I really wanted to do was take all this content that I was generating and turn it into this living magazine, really. And that's, you know, what I attempted to do with Expression Engine and Cartthrob. And I worked on that in the end for about two years um, before it became very clear that Cartthrob were just going to disappear, basically. Um, and I kept hoping, you know, I wrote a big epic article about this that is on the website and you might want to stick it in your show notes type of thing in case people are still interested in that. I mean, it's a couple of years old at this point, but um, I developed this site uh, and I did so much work on it. But the company, um, Mighty Big Robot or whatever, you know, they got increasingly less communicative. They stopped answering support stuff. And, you know, the writing was on the wall. But then, you know, all of a sudden, for a few months, there was a flurry of activity. They started posting on Twitter, you know, Cutthroat 3, it's just around the corner, you know, making good progress, all this stuff. And I was like, all right. I remember yeah. those days. Yeah. You know, I was like, well, this could actually work, you know, kind of thing. And we might be okay here um, and so on. But um, then within a month, really, of that sort of flurry of activity, there was another message saying, you know, that's it, we're done. Cutthroat's over. And, you know, for me, this was not a great day because I'd spent a couple of years developing this very sophisticated website based on Expression Engine and Cartthrob. And uh, before I'd even launched, I was literally maybe six weeks away from the launch, Cartthrob went out of business. And I'm like, well, that's great. I'm launching on a dead... Oh, wait. So you, you've been working on it for two years and you hadn't launched it. It wasn't like an ongoing, you had launched an MVP kind of version of it. No, no, no. Just because of the way I was doing it and there wasn't really an easy way to kind of trickle it out. I really was working on it completely in a vacuum. Much like the book that I wrote back in the day, I was literally in my room working on this thing that nobody saw for two years. You know, nobody except for people in the business. Um, and I had delivered nothing and then Carthro went out of business and I was like, this is not great. <laughs> I haven't even got the thing out. That's devastating. And, you know, one of the two major things I've built on top has gone out of business. So that was definitely a rough week. And uh, around that time, obviously, the interest and growth in craft was pretty incredible. That was its sort of early growth stage. Everybody was talking about it. You know, if you, you hung out on hashtag expression engine or whatever it is, you know, basically every second comment was craft, not expression engine at all. And it just felt like, well, both of these platforms were dying. So despite this huge amount of effort and time investment, I said to my wife, I think I have to evaluate rewriting the whole thing at this point. I have to think about craft because it seems to be the future. It seems to be expression engine with all the rubbish, you know, and all the bad bits taken out of it and all the major problems kind of fixed. The big thing is there isn't really an e-commerce thing for it at all yet. But I've heard rumors of this market thing. So I'm going to, you know, and that's developed by an Australian. And I think I might give this guy a call and um, I might see where, where it's at. And very much at that time, I think it was just around then, literally the same week, Pixel and Tonic announced that they had picked up Market, which became Commerce, from Luke. They had, you know, folded it in. This was just like, wow, okay, this is exactly what I have always wanted. A single company that has a, you know, sort of world-class content system and a world-class commerce system supported by a company that I absolutely know are excellent. You know, I'd been using all the Pixel and Tonic add-ons, obviously, with Expression Engine. So I'd had quite a lot of contact with, you know, Brad Bell and Brandon and so forth uh, for support. And I, I knew they were just good people, clever people, 
reliable people and just willing to really do actual support, which I think we all, those of us who have been in IT know an awful lot of IT support is sort of at a token level or best. They kind of vaguely look at your issue and, and sort of go, oh, it could be this, and then they move on and whatnot. The experiences I'd had with Pixel and Tonic were that they were really a cut above most of the companies I'd worked in. And to be honest, I'd been working you know, in IT as a serious professional for seven or eight years at the beginning of my career, but all through, I've had lots of other contact with IT from the perspective of running a business and so on. So basically, I had 20 years of looking at IT companies, and I felt Pixel and Tonic, they're just about the best company I know. They're small, but they're very, very good. They're clever, and they're just really genuine. So I had no qualms at all about craft. But well, basically, they said, we've picked up comments, and I thought, this could be really good. So I rang Luke, basically, oh, I'd set up a Skype with Luke and we had a good long chat. And at the end of that chat, I said to my wife, I'm going to rewrite the whole goddamn thing. And, you know, <laughs> you know and it's going to take me a little while. What's the look on her face at that time? Uh, no, she was great. I mean, yeah, the way I'm telling it's probably wrong. I was much more like, you know, could I really do this? This is insane. What am I thinking? You know, this is not right. I shouldn't do this, right? You know, type thing. And she was like, you're really unhappy about where you're at with this other system. And... I think you should do it. You know, um, so she was you know, wildly supportive and that gave me the confidence to go ahead and actually do it. So let's pause real quick. So like while, while you're kind of building these things that nobody's seeing and then you're moving over to craft and kind of before that, like you're, you have a, a site that's live at that point, right? Oh, yes, I do. That site was, uh, it became called Big Commerce, but the previous version of our site was built on what was called Interspire Shopping Cart. So at the, the point I went with them, which was probably um, hmm, 2008, just before Interspire moved out of Australia and went to Austin. And I still bear a grudge about this, quite frankly. They were an Australian company, and that was one of the reasons I chose them because one of the big problems with Australia is time zones. And so getting you know serious support for stuff can always be a bit of a challenge because often if you actually want to talk to someone, it means you have to wake up at 3 a.m. and set up a call at ridiculous time. Anyway, I chose this Australian company. They had a really quite good PHP-based shopping cart program, and I had long conversations. You know, I've got all these big, long email back and forth with them about customization and about their future plans uh, for it and how they were very open to sort of custom development, all this sort of thing. So I spent quite a lot of time working on stuff related to Inspire Shopping Cart. And then very, very suddenly, literally out of nowhere, no warning whatsoever, including their own staff, had no idea it was coming, they announced that they were moving to Austin, Texas and becoming a software as a service company with no custom development allowed on their platform. Nothing but plugins. So literally overnight, it went from being this flexible, extensible, yeah, we're happy to work with you. We've got developers ready to go to a, we're a web app and you can only, yeah, you can make plugins, but within very tight limits and it's going to be like this. It's our way or the highway. That really irritated me and it still irritates me to this day. And, you know, the same guys running the company, Big Commerce, and I am, well, you can probably tell I am not a big fan at all. <laughs> they were dead to me at that point, just if nothing else, because they handled it so poorly. I understand in business, you can't always tell the complete truth at all times. And sometimes you do have to keep things close to your chest. But what you can do is not actively lie to people for months on end before you're about to announce a massive change to your business. You can at least proceed with a little caution and a little honesty in how you're dealing with your customers and sort of say to them, look, you might be able to do that, but it's possible that we might do this in the future. So keep that in mind, you know, just stuff like that. They didn't do that. And we were on big commerce, um, but we ran that Inspire shopping cart with our custom code. We never migrated to the web platform, but we ran just the, the self-hosted shopping cart from, in the end, it was from 2008 to 2016, August 2016, when we launched with Craft and Commerce. 
so yeah, we had an active site and people really liked it because we had customized it quite heavily and we, you know, I'd put quite a lot of effort into as much as possible integrating all the content that we had back into the cart, but it was very limited. You could really, you could only do, you know, a very minor amount of that. You couldn't create a really nice page building interface and put your products anywhere you like on the page and completely intersperse them through the content. And basically you just couldn't do any of the things I really wanted to do in terms of that sort of living magazine approach that I've talked about. So it was really limited, but it was very functional. People ordered off it. And weirdly, we still got compliments about that site, you know, even though it wasn't responsive and it looked like it was very much designed in 2008. Um, you know, people were still sending us compliments about it just before we launched our new website. So, so it was pretty good. You know, to be fair, it was functional and it was a solid thing for the business. It did all right, but it it was nowhere near what I wanted it to be. For me, the website has been really our primary and pretty much our only marketing platform. We do some direct marketing. We have a very active newsletter and we use a bit of Google ads, but we don't do magazine advertising. We don't go to trade shows. We really use the website as the absolute core of our business. It is everything to us. And therefore I wanted it, well, I wanted it to be a better reflection of the business itself, which is a business that's that's focused on education, that is focused on very, very high quality um, results and that, that really knows its niche in an exceptional way. And I've often spoken about this before in, in various other contexts, but the way I see the world of e-commerce moving is very much towards the big box store. I think anyone in e-commerce who's not looking over their shoulder at, at the Amazons of this world is just stupid. I mean, the simple reality is that I believe now it's one in every $2 in the United States in e-commerce goes directly to Amazon. You know, they are without doubt the gorilla in the room. Well, even in the, on that note, like honestly, so my wife and I, for our own personal budget, we started creating our Amazon and Target budget lines. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Like that's how much we also purchase from Amazon is like we separate that out, you know? Right, yeah. Amazon has recently entered Australia, but it hasn't taken off in the same way because as of yet, they don't really understand the Australian market and they don't understand what has always referred to over here as the tyranny of distance. The basic problem in Australia is that you have a very widely dispersed small population. So, you know, you have several big cities, but the distances between them are massive. You know, Australia is a very big country. It's basically, you know, the size of Canada, but it has 25 million people. Um, and so it's a small market with a whole lot of transport and logistics issues in a nutshell. And Amazon is much better in the context of the United States. We've got 300 million people and they live all over the place and you've got extremely established courier networks and really cheap shipping and all that sort of thing. So Amazon fundamentally makes more sense over there than it does here. But on the flip side, Amazon is one of the, clearly one of the most clever companies on the planet and I don't expect them to fail to understand the Australian market for too long. Again, anyone who doesn't look over their shoulder at them as, as a looming problem in retail or a looming massive competitor, you know, it's just head in the sand stuff at this point. You have to be aware that they're out there and that they're very good at what they do. And what they do is big box retail, low prices, getting it to people effectively, but basically bugger all in the way of serious support or knowledge about the products. Really, all they are is a marketplace. So for me, the future of e-commerce for everybody else is expertise-based commerce. You really need to build your business based on knowing your domain exceptionally well, on communicating about that domain exceptionally well, and on things like product selection and on support, being able to back up the products that you sell with a great amount of personal knowledge about how they can improve people's lives, particularly if those people are other people who are professionals and are buying those products for business reasons, you really need to know them intimately. And so 
that's at the core of our business. It's all about knowing more about the stuff that we sell and that we do than anyone else or than in particular people like Amazon. Expertise-based commerce. So is a part of your strategy, so you talked about like the Living Magazine kind of aspects of kind of merging content with your products and obviously what you're saying here about being an expert and displaying that expertise in written form or, or whatever media that is, is SEO and kind of search rankings and stuff, is that kind of a part of that or is that just a byproduct of that expertise in your mind? Like, how do you approach that? It's both. I mean, I think we've always hit way above um, our weight in SEO just because we've had so much more content than anyone else in our industry. So we have quality content. And by that, I, I don't just mean, yeah, little puff pieces that are 300 words long and say, isn't this great? I'm really talking about tutorials on how to use things and in-depth articles on, on you know, how you can fundamentally change your business based on such and such a product and that sort of thing. Really, really proper long-form content is the absolute key to SEO. You can do all, all the SEO keywording magic and all that rubbish that you like, but in the end, the long-term success in the context of SEO is all about having really good content that other people link to, that other people visit, and that other people value and read. Have you ever hired an SEO agency? I've never hired in an SEO agency. No, the closest I've come to that is probably pestering Andrew Welch on Slack. Obviously, look, in craft, I think that, well, there's really two big SEO items, but um, for whatever reason, I chose Andrew's SEOmatic, which is, you know, a pretty fantastic thing. And, you know, that has allowed us to do all the JSON LD and all of that sort of fundamental technical stuff. But to me, that's kind of a distraction. It's just necessary technical stuff to implement. And certainly we have implemented it. But the absolute core is it's absolutely meaningless if you don't have the content to back it up. And if you don't have the ability to convert that content into actual sales, you know, in the end, although I'm not really a businessman at heart, I mean, I, and I work in the domain I work because I love that domain. I love the visual arts and I'm not in it to make mega bucks or anything. I just want to make a comfortable living. But in the end, the whole point of all of this stuff is to make conversions so that, you know, ultimately I can feed my kids. Um, so good content is to me what leads to long-term sustainability in a big box world. And that's all about, yep, turning content into conversions. So the closer that you can get your actual shop stuff to your actual high quality content, the better. But yes, you still need a driver to get people in. So you still need basically Google to drive traffic into your site, no doubt about that. Um, and you still need to you know, show up and do talks at places and do all the other things that you have to do as, as a business owner to get the word out there. But um, for us, without doubt, I would say you know, 95 out of 100 customers find us through the website, simply through searching about something that we happen to know about and have good content on, that gets them to the website in the first place. And then the website itself, the quality of the content and the presentation of the products within that content gets them to actually, you know, convert that into a sale. That's fascinating. So when I think about even just people who are building in craft, like I think what you're saying is extremely important for them to hear because the idea that, well, one, if they're already taking advantage of craft, they're using you know one of the best platforms out there for doing the type of thing that you're talking about and being able to create amazing content in a way that can merge well with your shop and your products and to take advantage of that technology to really propel yourself. But it's true that not a lot of even craft commerce sites or even just marketing sites that are built in craft have the mindset of delivering their expertise. Yeah, uh, for me, I mean, that, that's why you would choose craft. And, and I know this is a commerce sort of related podcast, but to be honest, in many ways, to me, the real glory is actually craft. I mean, commerce is obviously great and so on, but 
it's a shopping cart system. The real glory of the platform ultimately comes from craft itself. It's the page building stuff, really. And when I get right down to it, it's the fact that once you've built something out of craft, you can then very quickly assemble entire new areas of your website that allow you to present new content. You know, for example, if we started getting inquiries, you know, we're experts in high-end monitors for people who work in the visual arts. You know, that's something we're known for. We probably sell more of them than anyone else in the country. And that means that people looking for monitors and, you know, specific types of monitors just naturally come to our site. And it turned out that lots of these people were people who had problems with monitors, as in they had problems with their eyes that meant that modern monitors weren't comfortable for them. So we had a lot of people who were looking at monitors from the ergonomic perspective rather from the color quality and visual arts perspective, which is what we were all about. And once these queries started becoming frequent, I thought to myself, well, look, this is a whole little area that we have never even thought about targeting. You know, it's a new market for us. These are people who, they're not artists, they're not photographers, they don't need $3,000 monitors from that perspective. These are people who are getting headaches and, you know, have health issues. And that's why they're looking at these. And I'd never even thought of this as a market. But as soon as I identify that as a market, within a day or two, I could just create a new dedicated area of the site with an article about what are the major things that cause eye fatigue problems on monitors and what are the solutions to those things. And therefore, you know, here's these products that we have that have all these technologies in them that solve that problem. And once you have a page building type of thing set up with craft and with commerce, you can build a page like that in literally half a day. Whereas if you were trying to do that, you know, in some sort of static approach or, or, you know, building it from scratch type of thing, it would take a vastly longer amount of time to do the same thing. Or even to use one of the office shelf systems, right, where like Shopify or even, dare I say, big commerce, where, you know, you're a shopping cart first and kind of getting your contents, it's kind of wrap around that or something is. Yeah, but it's always a compromise. You know, you can have a block of content and then a grid of products underneath, but you can't really weave it all together. Like, the web's a subtle place. Like very small differences in page design can make have a surprisingly big impact on how people perceive what they're reading and what they're learning about um, and, you know, their experience um, of your site. And it sounds like it's almost the same thing. You have a block of content and they have a little grid of products underneath, but it's not quite the same as having a paragraph with a product and then another paragraph. And it's literally sort of completely intertwined together. It really allows people to learn and buy at the same time. And it's been very effective. You know, I mean, just to talk about the actual commerce side of things, since launching that website, my biggest problem is I no longer have time to do any more website stuff because the business is so crazily busy now. It had a profound impact within a few months of launching, you know, um, because you see all of our numbers ticking up like dramatically, you know, we're we're way above where we were two years ago to the point where we're, you know, looking at new staff and all that sort of thing. Um, So all this effort, it has a profound impact on the bottom line ultimately. But for me, yeah, the key is absolutely this intertwining of content and commerce. That's at the heart of it all. And that that is why I kind of say craft is the absolutely core thing. I mean, yes, you need the commerce bit. That's the kind of functional transactional side of things. But the real glory of, of it all is how good craft is at content management. It's a very good system for it. And it's particularly good for that small to medium enterprise that really wants something extremely flexible, the ability to rapidly deliver complex new content quite easily and with such a good editorial experience as in I've never trained anyone in our office in any serious way about how to use the back end because it's so obvious you know you just start using it and okay you know you're using matrix and you go all right I'm gonna add a pullout quote or I'm gonna add a product or I'm gonna add a YouTube embedded video or whatever it is it's just like putting blocks together it's kind of the lego of of websites you can build what you want and uh, if you create a decent page building interface, it can be a remarkably flexible thing. 
Yeah, absolutely. And your blog content, I was looking at, you go all the way back to 2011. So you've been writing for quite a while. When we migrated to this website, I only went so far back. I mean, we, we've had a newsletter and a blog since 2002. So we have customers that have been with us since 2002 and are still subscribed to our newsletter now, 16 years later, and who still read the blog and who still come in the door and buy stuff. So as I say, when I say that content is at the core of our business, I'm not kidding. That, that has been literally from day one of the business. You know, when we put up the first website, it was an article about some of the products, you know, here's how to use a monitor calibrator properly. You know, that's how it started. That was like the very first page on our first website. It wasn't really, in fact, I'm pretty sure it launched without a shop at all. It started, you know, as a blog and whatnot. And then I added very simplistic e-commerce to it after that, although it's lost in time now. I always have this idea that one day I'll go back and I'll, I'll, you know, set up like my own Wayback machine with the various versions along the way, just so that I can look at how much it's changed in that time. Because when you work on it daily, it's very hard to see, you know, to look back on 16 years and really look at all the changes in any sort of meaningful way. It's like watching your kids grow. You don't, you see them every day. Other people go, oh, they're they're so much taller. And you go, well, they're pretty much the same size as they were yesterday. You know, I'm not (laughs) sure I'm seeing this. But actually, there have been some pretty big changes, both in my children and in the business in the full 16 years that it's all been going. Well, so speaking of big changes then, what was the first product that you sold online? Do you remember? It would have almost certainly been a monitor calibrator, I would say, you know, through the business. Um, that's the most likely thing. I mean, as a business, we are, you know, one of the biggest, I guess, it's both the one of the best things I did and also one of the worst things I did was right from the beginning of the business, I really set up two businesses at once. So we are, you know, and what we've been talking about today is very much about products and retail and so forth. But we're also a production laboratory. So we, a bit like a photo lab, but much higher end. We work with very serious artists and galleries and and that sort of thing. People working on prints uh, for sale in, you know, high-end context. So not your posters or anything, but your real art prints. Um, So we have a full services arm and a full products arm. And they're really two, I mean, each side of the business informs the other side, but they are fundamentally two separate businesses and each of them has the full complexity of a business on their own and we run both of them so it keeps us very very busy and that again is a testament well actually that's a really good point about commerce it is so incredibly flexible commerce that you can create a beautiful interface for ordering services but you can also create a beautiful standard retail interface for ordering products and it's rare to find a product that does both of those things really well and so effortlessly really as commerce. I mean, overall, I, one of the things that it's worth saying about commerce is I found the development very easy compared to Carthrob, for example, and indeed even compared to other shopping calendars. It was surprisingly easy. It's very logical. The templates work the same as the rest of craft, really. So once you know that basic approach and the basic um, structure of templates and so forth, it's not that hard to implement commerce. And in a quite sophisticated way, which I think is a real testament to the good thinking behind it. You know, Luke is remarkable in, in how deeply he thinks about things. And that was something I, I noticed right from that very first phone call with him is that, you know, he's not half-assing this. He is really thinking about commerce very deeply and the right way to do it. I admire the fact that sometimes he he says no to me. You know, I, along the way, there were plenty of times I said, oh, you, you know, you really, you want to think about doing this. And he was like, nah, that that's not right. That's not going to be. Yeah, they're really good at saying no to certain things. Can you remember one of those? I can remember plenty of no's. As in, I mean, well, there are some times where he said no and he was, I think, just fundamentally wrong, such as multi-ad. There was no question that you needed an ability. And, you know, credit to him, he's come around to that and he's implemented his own multi-ad. So it's not like the boy can't learn. You know, so, but uh, no, no, there were plenty of things. I no, Actually, I can't 
off the top of my head recall any specific examples, probably because at the time they were stupid ideas and I have fortunately forgotten my own stupidity. And, and I look back on myself with rose-coloured glasses and I forget my own stupidity quite deliberately. <laughs> so, no, I can't think of a, a particular example, but I have always admired about all of the Pixel and Tonic people is they're not afraid to say no because saying no is it's really important because it gives you an honest picture of what is and isn't going to happen and therefore you can plan on that if they're constantly saying oh we might do this or you know it's possible that or yeah maybe in version five kind of thing you discourage people you know from building things themselves which is you know initiated with a plugins and plugin store and so on but um it's just really good if they can say quite clearly we don't think that's the right direction that's just as important as coming up with cool stuff because it gives clarity to your customer. Clarity to your customer is, that is one of e-commerce's or commerce's fundamental things, as in you have to be clear about what you're giving your customer, what you're selling your customer and what they're going to get from it. In a way, that's their version of expertise-based commerce in terms of actually selling their own product. It's the same thing, really, if you think about it. Yeah, it is. We talked about it earlier, but the idea that you're, so going to the, the ideas that Luke has rejected, but he, at least the three main of your plugins that I appreciate, right? Register on, on checkout and friendly order numbers and the multi-ads. So two of them are going to be in right away in commerce too. And then one of them's on the, on the slate, you know, and that's one of the things I appreciate too, is just being able to go into GitHub, check where the issues are. You can tell, you know, if you look at their projects and, and, you can kind of see what things are working on, what's in a backlog, but you get a response a bit of like what's in the issue tracker and you kind of see what they're accepting. Yeah, there's a transparency there. And in fact, it's much better now than it was even a year or two ago. I mean, the the move of craft and commerce onto GitHub, I think is just a fabulous thing and is, is a really positive thing for the future of both the platforms because, yep, it gives you this public forum to talk about things and to see where things are going and to get other people's viewpoints on it. It's great. Don't get me wrong. It was absolutely lovely when it was just three of us in a Slack room where we you know, could kind of very heavily guide things. But I have to acknowledge the world is not just about me and <laughs> it's really good to see other people contributing their thoughts to those sorts of things. And I, I love the fact that they are, you know, they've clearly recognized there is a need for multi-ad and for um, friendly order numbers. And, you know, a couple of those things, like friendly order numbers, that was one I tried really hard to get in in the early days and one. And that was one where Luke just went, oh, it's not a priority type of thing. And we've got this UID system. And I did keep saying to him, customers are never going to be comfortable with UIDs. It's just not natural. It's not human. People want a basic order number. And as a business owner, you want easy communication with your customer about orders because there's always going to be problems and things you have to, you know, discuss. It's just so fundamental. And, you know, that's from the perspective of a merchant, it's really easy to see that. Possibly from the perspective of an e-commerce developer, you're looking at it, well, I need to have a unique numbering, you know, I need to keep everything unique and I, I don't want people to guess the URLs and blah, 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 blah. There's all these technical things that, you know, might lead you to the decision that UIDs are the way to go. But commerce, anyone in commerce knows friendly ordering numbers are just the only way to go. But they've come around to that way of thinking and it might have taken them slightly longer than I wished, but they're there and uh, that's a good sign of, you know, just the ability to respond to the needs of your customers. Yeah, so that's a really good and I would say obvious one that needs to get in there <laughs> because, you know, it just fundamentally improves the experience both for merchants and customers. And if you're selling a commerce, an e-commerce system, your end customers, they're the people to get things right for. Yeah, exactly. So in your business, right? So with your, I mean, you have a lot going on with the services arm and the retail arm of those things. Like what's the future of your business? Where are you hoping that things can be in a year, two years, five years? Like what's, what's your vision for it? Uh, ooh, retirement. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> look, 
the business is in a kind of fairly settled stage. We're very sort of established in our own market. We do quite well. I've never had the desire to grow it into a big business. You know, I don't want to have, well, big, you know, or even medium business. I don't really want to have 20 people working for me and so on. I just don't need that level of responsibility for other people's lives and incomes in in my life. I, I like the smallness of it. And in that sense, I've kept it deliberately small. And that also means that we tend to have very personal relationships with our customers. You know, we make friends with them, basically. We get to know them over the years. We are helping them in their business success. And we have the pleasure of watching people who are at the complete beginning of, the, of their careers turn into, you know, established professionals in their own right. And we help them with all the stuff that we do that applies to them along that journey. And I, I would imagine for the next five to 10 years that it will, to be honest, and this is unusual, but I think it's not a bad thing, it will probably look very similar to the way it does now. I mean, there'll be improvements and changes, of course, but it's not going to fundamentally shift in terms of what we do and how we do it. My goal is for the next 10 years, to keep it a pleasant place to work for me and my staff, to continue, you know, working with some of the very best artists in the country because that's just something I love doing and for it to make a good living for my family um, so that I can get my two kids through high school and so forth and set them up for their their own journeys and then I'll reevaluate at that point. I'm thinking for the next 10 years, this is what I'm doing and I, I don't have any other plans other than that. But after that, I may well want to do something different again. And it wouldn't surprise me if it was in back in computing and the web and software world in some form. Now, along the way, I probably will probably actually write some more plugins and potentially release those on the plugin store and things like that. For about 10 years there, I kind of got a little bit out of touch with IT and um, with programming and that sort of thing. And I'm, I'm very much enjoying being back in that world because I've always liked it and I find it interesting and challenging. So I will probably carry on doing some more of that. I may well do some websites for some other people who have approached me and, you know, sort of said, hey, love what you really? did. Would, would like to do some other things. It's possible. The only problem is I don't realistically think I have the time. So <laughs> I was going to say. Yeah. So, well, I would have to do that in a project managing sense, in the sense of I would need to have a couple of developers or whatever to help me actually do it, but would do it, you know, from the kind of, I guess, from the consultancy perspective, you know, talking to people about what they should build and how they should build it and what that can do for their business more so than actually building it, but potentially managing that side of it as well. And my entire career in the IT world, I was a bridge because I was seen as a kind of good communicator. I was always a bridge between the business and the technical people. So I would always, part of my role was to basically look at business requirements, you know, classic business analyst stuff, and then translate that into the logistical stuff, i.e. the IT that needed to support that. So I'm pretty good at that. I've got a good history in that area. And I think that I could take those skills and apply them to other people and other people's businesses in a useful way. And I just wouldn't fundamentally have the time to literally sit there, you know, day in, day out, week in, week out doing the actual coding. But I don't want to lose touch with that completely, for sure. I like doing it. That's a really long-winded answer, but something like, you know, the next 10 years will be something like that. But I'm not a great long-term planner. You may have noticed from the earlier parts of this conversation that I, I you <laughs> Did know... Did you notice my question was one to two to three, five years? Yeah, sure. I, I caught that. Well, I want to keep things stable for my family first and foremost, because that's pretty important. Um, and so I have to fight my own urges to just jump ship and just try something new. So whatever I do, it will be within the greater landscape of what I do now. And while carrying on successfully running image science, but... Within that, I have engineered things such that I have a bit more flexibility than most people. And thus, you know, thus I was able to ultimately spend three years developing 
our current website. Now that wasn't three years full time or anything insane like that. That was sometimes it was half an hour a week and sometimes it was a day and a half a week or whatever. But it the full development, you know, was ended up being essentially three years from initial start to actual launch date. And not many people can do that while running a business because they just don't have the time or capacity. So I've at least got things to a point where I have that day-to-day flexibility that I, you know, it's a bit of a luxury, I guess, but I can pick and choose what I do with my day a little bit more than most people, which is great. And I think, to be honest, I just kind of need that to stay motivated. And thus, I was able to do this particular site and I would like to take all the things I learned in that. I mean, though, I will say for the next few months, really all I'm going to be doing in that area is converting to Craft3 and Commerce2, which is without a doubt looking a bit less pleasant than I had hoped. You know, it's going to be a big job. There's no doubt about that because I have, there's the public facing website, but what I also write was a massive set of integrations into, you know, accounting and order communication systems and things like split order processing and and all sorts of back-end stuff that other people don't see but is integral to our successful and efficient running of the business. So there's a whole other side to this project. And then there was also, I went nuts and I built this automatic ebook building system um, that basically takes some of the very, very long form content the website has that actually isn't in craft, but is stored in in Markdown and automatically converts it into, you know, Kindle eBooks and EPUBs and all that sort of stuff. So there are several sort of sub projects within the master project that is, you know, image science, website slash logistics. And all of that needs now to be brought forward and into the modern craft world. I've made a rod for my own back here. There's a lot of work in the next six months for me to just get that stuff all working again on the new platform. But I really like it. And as long as I can find the time, I'll get it done. Yeah, it sounds like you're going to enjoy that. You, you know, be able to keep your interest and you're learning new things. So I think I think you'll enjoy it. I think you'll enjoy it a lot. Yeah, I have so. And I like, I like modernizing my skills. You know, I don't like being out of date. I tend to be fairly... Um, forward thinking and you know that doesn't mean i jump on every javascript framework bandwagon in the universe or anything like that but it does mean that i want to keep my technology largely up to date and largely best practice and you know i read all those andrew welch tutorials the same as everyone else and some of them i take on board and some of them i just look at and think wow that's jumped the shark a little bit but still (laughs) i um i very much you know do like to keep up to date so yeah fundamentally i enjoy it which is good. You know, the other big project I did was, um, that unfortunately never really seemed to gain much traction in some ways, was what I call Craft Ansible, which is a complete deployment and server setup system built on Ansible and designed for craft websites, which does a huge proportion of the stuff that you see people talking about in the DevOps channels. You know, they're using things like Buddy for deployment and they're using craft scripts to pull their databases and whatnot. And this Craft Ansible system I did, does all of that and a whole lot more and it's actually i think probably the most interesting thing other than you know the site itself that i developed in the whole project and i'm hoping that when i get to craft three that i'll actually revisit that and perhaps make that a little bit more public facing friendly and get more people interested to that because i think it could really benefit actually a lot of people who do yeah because craft you know i think it naturally fits into the there's more owner builders in craft than you might expect i mean obviously there's lots of agencies doing lots of websites for other people but there's also quite a number of people in there who are working on their own projects for themselves or for their businesses and so on. And for a lot of those, the DevOps stuff can get really intimidating and difficult. And anyway, it's just really cool. I just thought I'd throw that out there. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> Yeah, definitely, definitely. Well, it's been good to hear your journey. And I, I, yeah, I appreciate you, um, the insights that you've added. I mean, we've definitely appreciated kind of the things that, that you've added to the community. And again, like especially those plugins that you've kind of talked about. But I think your focus on the content 
and the store and the products and kind of merging all that in is like spot on and is and is something that a lot of people in some ways it's a lot it's i mean there's work in writing content and being an expert and getting it out there you know oh yeah no one should underestimate the amount of work involved i in the content or in in the entire you know craft and commerce development stuff in total it's a buttload of work no doubt about it but at the end of it you can have a thing that can be the foundation of your business and that can fundamentally and positively drive your bottom line and to me that's got to be the goal and then again if you're not looking over your shoulder at those big retail things and thinking wow they're really good at just the selling stuff you know in the pure here's a box it costs this much get it to the customer sense you've got to be looking at content you've got to be looking at expertise or you're in trouble absolutely it's a good place to kind of end this so i yeah i appreciate you coming on the show and talking with us and giving us your expertise not only in craft, but also just in running a business and getting sales online. So thanks for joining us. That's right. It's my pleasure. If you don't walk away from this episode understanding just how powerful craft commerce is, the combo of craft CMS with craft commerce uh, for your business or for your clients' businesses, then you really need to listen to it again. Jeremy just comes with this full understanding of, of just how to run a business, how to run a business really in the age of big box stores, Amazons of the world and and just really deliver if you're a brand really wanting to survive and really more than that, then um, his, his expertise is really critical and important. So I'd say follow it for sure and um, hit him up on Slack if you're in Slack, if you're a developer and uh, or hit him up in his business if you're down in Australia and uh, down in Melbourne and you can see what they're doing, see the artwork and the, the photography that they're printing for people and, and the awesome work. So uh, we will see you again in two weeks. Oh, I should add, definitely check out our blog. So in a week after this episode, we will have a long-form blog following Jeremy's advice where we are going to show kind of a behind-the-scenes of Jeremy's setup, his page builder that he's done for his living magazine approach um, for his content. So definitely check that out in a week. Sign up to our that's our email list, right? Sign up for it if you want to get notified in case you forget. So go and check it out. And um, as always, we'll see you in two weeks. Thank you.